go to Amazon and type in uh, book how to write and hit enter. And every book will be essentially books saying, you see this film that made a choice? That's a convention you have to apply. And they're basically trend fad books, right? They're telling you how to write in a trendy style um, that's currently popular in Hollywood. And of course, by the time the book comes out and you've written your story, you know, 10 years have passed and the styles have changed. You see it all the time, like Save the Cat is one of those things, like how do, how do you write a book where well, you have to make your protagonist seem empathetic? It's like, yeah, fine, that might have been interesting until long-form television came out and everyone's favourite person is a drug-dealing meth chemist, right? And like now, it's not about saving the cat, it's about letting the girl die in her vomit. Hello, and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylog team. So today, we're going to talk about Brick. We are, and the genius Ryan Johnson. Yes, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> yeah. He's great. I, I would love if that was the level of your insight today. Yeah, Ryan Johnson. <laughs> You're welcome, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Um, as always, if you want to get in touch, uh, you can email us through our website, thestorytoolkit.wordpress.com, and on Twitter at thestorytoolkit. Let's get into it. Okay, so Brick is a movie made in 2003, 2002, 2003, something like that. Uh, it's, I think it's Ryan Johnson's first proper film. Uh, Ryan Johnson, of course, is very famous for a, either destroying or saving Star Wars, depending on your opinion. Our opinion is that he saved Star Wars because uh, we loved the Last Jedi. Um, but Ryan Ryan Johnson, yeah, but Emperor of Star Wars. This, yeah, this is why uh, Ryan. I think he's excellent. Uh, but Ryan Johnson, um, he he was known to people before Last Jedi for Looper, and before that he did The Brothers Bloom, and before that he did Brick, and Brick kind of put him on the map because it was so original. My favorite. My favourite Ryan Johnson story is Vince Gilligan talking about Ryan Johnson. Yeah, because he did episodes of Breaking he Bad. Did episodes of Breaking Bad. What was this? What's the? the story, I'll I'll give you a quick version. Uh, Vince Gilligan talks about watching an episode of uh, Columbo. Right. Seeing the way the intro was shot, this car coming in a parking uh, garage, right. and being just blown away, and then he sees the credits come up, and it says directed by Steven Spielberg, and he's like, "Oh wow!" He said when he saw the dailies from. Um, the Ryan Johnson episode, he felt the same way about them that he did about the episode of Columbo. Wow. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, well, he directed Ozymandias. That was one of the episodes he did, he yeah. Yeah, which is, of course, the, the huge episode of Breaking But you can see... <laughs> yeah. So I was conscious of that. So I've seen Brick a couple of times. Yeah. Um, and when I rewatched it for the podcast, I was, I was looking at the shots in a different way because I knew the story fairly well. Um but it's just so well stylized and shot. It's really lovely. There's a lot of feet. There's a lot of feet. And also, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed, like, the sound quality is a bit weird. It's not as polished. There's a, there's, you can hear the, you can hear the space. Yes. Right? And uh, the lighting is much, it's much more obviously, like, whatever happened to be in the room is kind of lighting the place. And <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It looks, it looks, it doesn't look cheap, but it looks really sort of raw. Yeah, and I just I love that. I yeah. love that. I, I particularly now, particularly now, because you know everything is done in green screen, and is so stupidly polished. It was like 
this actually feels like a film. Yeah. This doesn't feel like a video game. I, I'm really... But that, that kind of quality works yeah. for for the story, right? For film noir, because the, yeah, the story and, and, is... Yeah, but also it's just like this... It, it's kind of just how films used to be made. <laughs> like, <laughs> like on location and doing things. Uh, anyway, I, I we, we love Brick. Uh, but Brick put... Because uh, that was original, put him on the map. He did The Brothers Bloom, which did quite well, I think. Then he did Looper, which was a big sci-fi thing. He may have done something in between. I can't remember now. But then, of course, Last Jedi, um, and um, he's 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 very good, and he did Breaking Bad and great. So uh, Brick is it was this film he made in two thousand two two thousand three, stars Joseph Gordon Lovett, who of course he worked with again in Looper, and um, it's it's a it's like a hard boiled film noir set in a high school. American high school uh, and it's it's just it's really cool everyone in it is like you know teenage kid but it's like a it's like a detective it's 2005 apparently things I should have googled no, two, no 2005 might have been maybe no 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 because um, oh release date January 2005 yeah it was made because, before it was made before and it went around um, festivals festivals yeah. so it's major release would have been 2005 but i think it was 2002 2003 something like that okay. but anyway um so the the plot of brick so obviously we're going to get into spoilers now um but it's, it's very good and the plot of brick is um brendan who's played by uh gordon lovett uh he's very good in this yes but then he's very good in everything but he's he's really good in this the best but... in third rock from the sun surely <laughs> well, the thing is, like in true uh, Chinatown um, and like other hard-boiled novels and films, the the point of view is the protagonist in every scene. There's never a cutaway to another character carrying a scene without the protagonist active. Like you, he might be overhearing someone else's conversation, right? But he's in every scene. And uh, I remember uh, I took, it's very, I don't think he, he hasn't done this for years. He probably may not, not do it again. But uh, Bob, Robert McKee has done a film masterpiece day where he takes apart Chinatown. And one of the points he made in Chinatown that I really liked was he goes, it's really hard to do a, a, a story where every scene is from the protagonist's point of view. Because how do you get information to the audience? Any information the audience gets, it has to go through the protagonist. The protagonist has to see it as well. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So it becomes very hard to give con like you ha to do exposition and stuff. You made this point of how difficult it was to do, and he was saying like it's really impressive that in Chinatown every scene is JJ Giddis. So everything you learn, JJ Giddis has to learn it at the same time you do, and so on. So it's it's actually quite difficult to do that. Uh, and Brick is another one where it's all from Gordon Lovett's point of view. There's no scene, if I remember correctly, there's no scene that he's not in. And uh, and of course, when you do something like that, you need an actor to be able to to carry the screen for that long. He has to be able to play the scenes differently. He has to make the character interesting in every scene. He has to have the longevity of the performance. And, you know, we've done theatre. We've done full-length plays. And it's hard... To do that, to just constantly keep up performance and make it consistent. And that's, and like this, this would have been over weeks hmm. as opposed to like just two hours. It's, it's really uh, difficult and impressive. And um, 
I remember feeling that way when I saw Inside Lewin Davis. When Oscar Isaac just mm. was like, yeah, I'll just I'll just carry this film. That's fine. <laughs> um, so, <clears throat> so Brick, uh, it opens with uh, Brendan, uh, Golden Lovett's character. He's, uh, he's crouched at a tunnel. Uh, one of the sort of sewage tunnels, right? And uh, there's a girl lying dead in the water. And then it cuts two days earlier. <coughs> and he's with this girl. And they've broken up. And this girl, Emily, doesn't really want to have much to do with him. He still loves her. She cares about him, but she doesn't want to be with him. She's with another group of people. And uh, he's always on his own. And he's angry all the time. And she doesn't want that anger in her life. And so she doesn't want anything to do with him. And then he gets this call on a payphone because it was 2002. Uh, he gets a call from her and she's, she's rambling and scared and raving. And, um, um, and, we, and he starts looking for Emily because Emily's gone missing. He's trying to look for her. Now we know because of the flash forward that Emily's going to die. So his whole, like, I need to find her takes on a lot more ur- urgency, even though no one knows she's going to die and she's probably not dead yet. We know where this is going. So, of course, it's much more intense for us. And um, <clears throat> and so uh, he's going around trying to find out who she's hanging out with so he can in- sort of infiltrate this clique, find out where she is and find out what she's worried about. And there's some words that she was saying that she- he doesn't recognize. And one of them was brick or bad brick. Uh, and he's asking his friend, the brain, <laughs> who, if I remember right, his real name is Brian, which I think is a lovely joke. Because uh, I think, <laughs> I so- I think someone calls him Brian at one point and he calls him the brain. And I'm like, that's that's kind of cute. I might be wrong. Um, but Brian, anyway. Brain's always been my favorite character and I cannot tell you why. He's, he's really cool. He's just, he's, yeah. He's Maybe it's cool. the Rubik's Cube scene when, <laughs> when he turns up. <laughs> It's just solving a Rubik's Cube. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, solving a Rubik's Cube isn't that tough. Okay, do it. No, no. <laughs> As in, like, the Rubik's Cube comes with a manual telling you how to solve it. Oh, really? Yes. It's it's about... You, it's just you have to know how the Rubik's Cube works. And, like, how the... It's not like... You know, it's, it's a specific... This is why you have those people who can look at a cube study it for like 10 seconds then solve it one-handed because it's just a matter of like you the mechanisms of how it works it's 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 not meant to be it's just this funny icon of like if you can solve a rubik's cube you're a genius but actually it's like it comes with a manual it's a kid's toy the rubik's cube is also responsible for one of my favorite sight gags in anchorman where the uh uh, the editor is sat there at his desk he's got a solved four panel rubik's cube on his desk <laughs> Well, <clears throat> Anchorman, of course, has a character named Brick. How's that for a segue? Okay. <laughs> so back to Brick. Um, not the character. Uh, so he, he's talking to the brain and he's trying to ask the brain, like, what could these four words mean? And so Brick is one of them. Bad Brick. Uh, the other one is Tug, who he thinks might be a drink because vodka and milk. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that's, that's what Tug might be. Uh, Frisco. And he remembers there was a kid called Frisco. Um, and the last one was uh, Pin, uh, who he thinks might be referencing the Pin, i.e. the Kingpin, the guy behind all the drugs. He's really old, he says, like 26. Uh, <laughs> right? So um, 
so he he's got these words he's tr- and he's trying to crack what's going on and uh and if uh, at that point uh he goes uh, there's another guy a stoner called dode uh who emily has hung out with and he goes to dode in fact if i'm right dode and emily are the one emily left him for dode mm. isn't that right so he goes to dode and he you know he beats up dode <laughs> in the in the kind of hard-boiled detective way he beats up dode trying to like uh find out where emily is uh he won't tell her I tell him, and then um, he he goes after this jock footballer's party and everything, and he gets in trouble with this jock footballer. In fact, uh, he beats up. There's this great fight with this jock footballer. If you're like, where uh, he picks a fight with him just by insulting him and stuff, like because the guy is. Brendan is just this. He's he refers to himself as like an English major or something. He's got this fantastic way of speaking. Right, so he's got these great put downs all the time. Uh, there's a wonderful line where he's talking to the assistant vice principal, who's played by Shaft, right? Uh, and the assistant vice principal is like the police chief in this whole thing, and he brings him in and he's like, "Hey, listen, you gave up Jared with this one time, you know? So you're you're working for us now." Like <laughs> that's how the scene plays, and he's like, "Hey." I didn't give ja- I gave Jared up to see him get eaten. I didn't give him up to see you get fed. And, like, that's a fantastic line. Even so much that Shaft goes, good line, kid. You know, like, so he's got this great gift of the gab. So he uses that to embarrass the jock. So he and the jock have a fight in the car park. And um, just a, a brilliant bit of writing. The first thing that happens is the jock is taking off his jacket to get into the fight. And as the jock turns around, um, Brendan just jump by the way the jock is from the shield if you remember play trayvon in the shield um yeah uh brendan just launches his body at him and punches him right in the face and straight away you go like okay first of all he's not playing around okay (laughs) i mean he's that's a cheap shot the guy isn't ready right he's and he doesn't care that it's in full view of everyone right he's thrown his whole body into it Right, he's just jumped, bam, punched him in the face because obviously the guy's like twice his size, right? So he needs to compensate for that. And then the guy, of course, comes back and they start just—he starts pounding on him, throws him to the floor, and he kicks him in the leg. Um, and then the guy hits him ah, like that, and he kicks him in the leg again. And you're like, he's really smart. He's thinking this through. Like he's actually thinking as he's fighting how he's gonna beat him. And he kicks him, he kicks him, and then um, and then the guy beats him like that, and he thinks he's won. And that's when he comes back up and does another cheap shot and knocks him straight down and out. And like that's so you like you go okay you you know now Brendan can handle himself okay Brendan's a tough guy he can take a beating and still win and beat guys bigger than himself. But he's also smart and tenacious, right? Exactly. He's like he's actually smart, and all this is done in action without a word. But you know he's smart. He's like he's really like um, uh, ingenious. So anyway. Uh, and he's vicious. <laughs> he's vicious. So he, anyway, he beats he beats this guy up, and he manages to worm his way into this world. And unfortunately, um, he he steals Emily's notebook. Right, he manages to get a hold of a notebook, and he's trying to work out what's in this notebook. And one of the things that's in there is this little ripped piece of paper that has like an A on it, with midnight. Okay. And he's trying to work out what this this thing means. And he asks the brain, and the brain says, well, this symbol is probably a meeting place. 
So the symbol could either represent something or be completely random, but whatever it is, this symbol is telling them meet at this place at midnight so everyone in the group would know what this is, but people who aren't part of the clique wouldn't know what this place is. And um, and so Brendan is trying to work this out, He's and he's, he goes up to um, a, another uh, a woman inside this group that he doesn't trust at all because she's she's playing she's playing the jock that he beat up so he beat up the jock to get her attention and she's playing the jock so he can't trust her because she's too smart to trust um but he kind of wants to trust her because he, i think he likes her in some way um so he's trying to sort of navigate this whole thing and um <clears throat> he he anyway he's trying to solve this whole mystery um he he wants to see the pin he meets tug tug is a guy tug beats the crap out of him uh <laughs> it's great like if tug can beat the crap out of him then you know tug's quite a tough guy um he's he's looking in the notebook um and then a guy comes chasing after him with a knife because he goes to tug and he's like tug i want to meet the pin he meets the pin he makes an offer with the pin he says to the pin and the pin by the way is that he's living in his mom's basement um and he makes the offer with the pin and he says, look, you know, the assistant vice president thinks I'm on his team, but I can do the double agent thing. I can feed you him misinformation, feed you information. So everything goes like that. How does that sound to you as a deal? And he goes, maybe, maybe I'll give you my answer tomorrow. Then tomorrow, guess what happens? A guy with a knife chases after him in the school. And you have this fantastic chase scene where uh, Joseph Gordon-Lovett just pegs it. He just pegs it. This guy has a knife. He just runs. He just runs. He drops Emily's notebook and he runs and he runs and he runs and he runs. And he keeps running and the guy's chasing after him with the knife and he keeps running and keeps running. And there's this great, all you can hear is the sound of the feet, of the footsteps. And so he runs around a corner, takes off his shoes so the guy can't hear him. And then he stands next to the corner and as the guy runs, he can hear him coming. He does a slide tackle, trips the guy up. The guy goes straight into a metal pole, knocks him clean out. Right? This is great. Uh, it's a really great sequence. Um, and it's at that point he reckons, if I remember correctly. So he thinks like, okay, he's on outs with the pin. And he's worked out that the A on midnight is referencing the sewage tunnel that we've already seen. So when he goes to the sewage tunnel... He sees Emily's dead body. He hides Emily's dead body. Someone is in the tunnel and hears him and he runs after the person, but he doesn't catch them. He doesn't know who it is. So now Emily is dead. So she's gone from missing to dead, but no one else knows this except for the guy in the tunnel, whoever that was. And obviously whoever killed the person, right? Killed Emily. Um, He uh, is now trying to find out who Emily's killer is. He wants to obviously deal with that. So he's hidden the body, he tells the brain, uh, and he's trying to, you know, play all these sides, he knows about the pin, he knows about Tug, he's trying to do it. The pin and Tug are kind of having a problem uh, trusting one another. The Tug works for the pin, but they don't trust each other completely because Tug's kind of a hothead and Pin's playing it close to his chest. So there's this problem there, and it turns out that what's going on is there's a brick that got badly cut with... Uh, washing detergent or something and that's what Frisco was Frisco was someone who took uh, some of the the bad product and ended up in a coma so they know that the brick is bad and so there's this whole problem of trust in the organisation of over who stole the brick who cut it badly so they could sell more of the brick because that was the whole point you take the brick, you cut it 
You take some of the heroin, which is what the brick is, a brick of heroin. You take some of the heroin to sell for yourself, but you cut it with something else so it looks like you never cut, took anything. So what's going on with that? Um, then, uh, so he's trying to work this out. Um, the the woman that uh, is also part of the organization, he's confiding in her, telling him telling what his plans are and everything. And then Dode come, goes up to Joseph Gordon-Love and says, I know you killed Emily. And I know why. Because you couldn't handle the fact that she was having my baby. And uh, Brendan's just like floored at this idea that Emily was even pregnant. Uh, and now Dode is after him. So this is a problem. So then we have uh, this meetup where Dode is going to tell the pin and tug who killed Emily. So they meet at the tunnel. Dode is there. Tug is there. Pin is there, Brendan is there, and Dode is going to tell them who did it. And uh, Brendan's like, you can't trust him, he's a stoner, he doesn't know what he's doing. And um, and Dode's like, no, no, you got to hear this because the guy's close to you, really close. And that's when Tug runs up to Dode, punches, the, punches him, pulls out a gun and blows Dode's head off. And that's when you realise that Tug killed Emily. Not Dode. Not, uh, not, it wasn't, obviously, we knew it wasn't Brendan, but we know now Dode thought it was Brendan, but it turns out it was Tug. So this is a problem, because now the pin and the tug are kind of ha having this whole issue, because now he's implicated in a murder. So then they end up, uh, he, um, what's it called? Uh, Brendan tries to create um, a sort of ceasefire, talk it out with the brick and everything, but it's actually a setup for the police and the VP to come get them. And so he does this whole thing. Uh, to try and uh, get them all. And of course it turns out that actually Emily's in the trunk of, of the car. There's the bad brick. It all goes horribly wrong. Um, everyone gets arrested. Brendan just escapes with his life uh, from this whole thing. Because the brick is missing so that destroys the deal. Emily's body's in the car in, in, a, in, a car, in Tug's car trunk. Which of course exposes that. So they all get arrested. He runs away. And Brendan then confronts this woman who I mentioned earlier. Because he realizes that the woman played him. And what she did is she set up the slaughter. This big thing at the end. She set the whole thing up. Um, uh, because she's trying to... She's the one who stole the brick. And this is how she can get away with having stolen the brick and cut the heroin and done all that. By diverting blame from everyone else and getting everyone arrested and so on. She gets away with it. She doesn't have to worry about it. But unfortunately, Brendan's worked this all out. He's given her up. He's put the bad brick in her locker at school, so it's implicated her. Uh, and so, and he's told the VP about it. So not only is the pin going down and tug going down and everyone's going down, but so is this woman. And so this woman then plays the last card she has, and uh, she says that um, Dode was not the father of the child, and neither was Tug. And then leaves heavily implying that Brendan was indeed the father of Emily's child, the woman he loved. And that's the end of the film. Kind of butchered, <laughs> but um, that's that's kind of it. Um, so anyway, <clears throat> let's get straight into the meat then. What we want to talk about? Um, first of all, what are character roles? Okay, so, so define character roles. So a, a role a role is is like a, it's a functional thing. It's um, it's a type of thing that the story requires in order to be told. 
that's what the role is. So it's like it's a character has to fulfill a specific function. So in an action movie. So in an action movie, like you need a villain, right? Because um, the villain is what creates danger and uh, creates and therefore creates the spine of action. Because in an action movie, the protagonist wants to stop the villain, right? So characters fulfill roles. However, that doesn't mean that you need a specific kind of villain with like a pencil moustache or like a super villain or whatever. You don't necessarily need a Hans Gruber uh, because a monster can fit that, like Jaws mm. can fit that. Um, but also, um, in fact, because the villain doesn't necessarily need to make choices, you can have the environment do it. So you can have tornadoes and things. But it's it's a specific role that characters fill. And in some cases, you can have environments or whatever fill the role but characters specifically they make choices right so characters have roles uh in love stories you need you know the two lovers Mm -hmm. uh for example um and uh so roles are are sort of genre specific functional things that you need to address with your characters and uh, sometimes you can have multiple characters fill one role you can have uh, character have multiple roles. You can have characters change roles throughout the course of the story. It's it's not it's not like a one for one binary mm. formulaic thing. It's just um, you you kind of need them. So like in crime, I was I was just gonna uh, I was saying a really good example um, uh, is like Jekyll and Hyde, for example. You have hero and villain in the same. Oh yeah yeah in, sure in the same character yeah or the Hulk or the Hulk yeah. but yeah Hulk is just yeah. a, a right exactly a modern version yeah. Uh, so, like in horror films, you know, you need the monster, right? And yeah. obviously, a monster needs a victim. So, in crime, the, the, there's you you can have loads of roles from different genres, and you can have lots of little secondary roles. But what I'm focusing on is 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 the roles that are necessary. Like you can't do it without them. Yeah. As opposed to roles that are optional. So, in crime, the roles you have to have is a detective, a criminal, and a victim. And as soon as you understand what what a crime story is, you realize it's just obvious, right? Because a crime story is about crime, okay? So therefore, you need a criminal. Otherwise, there's no act being committed, right? But a criminal act requires a victim. So there has to be a victim. Otherwise, it's not a criminal act, okay? And in order for it to be a criminal act with a victim, you therefore need someone who can punish the criminal, and like capture them and arrest them, which is the detective. Because it's about justice and justice. Yeah. Well, also, it's not much of a criminal if you commit something and it's not against the law. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, you need someone who can bring the law. You know what I mean? You have to have someone who's willing to expose the fact that what they've done is criminal. If you can commit a criminal act out in the open and it's legal, it's not a criminal act. It, that doesn't make any sense, right? So then it's not a crime story. It's just a thing a guy did. <laughs> So you need the three. So in order for a criminal to be a criminal, it needs a victim and it needs a detective, right? So you need the three. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, uh, so what crime, where crime becomes interesting is you can tell a crime story from anyone's point of view, from the detectives, from the criminals, from the victims. So Ocean's Eleven, for example, okay? Danny Ocean's entire crew is a criminal and is the protagonist, Right? Andy Garcia is the victim of their crime. He's also a criminal and he's the detective because he's the one who's trying to crack what's happening, right? So he's all three, right? 
And they're the criminals, so it's a criminal on criminal thing, but like he's also a victim, he's the detective, because he's the one trying to work out what the cra- mm. what the thing is, right? So the way it works is basically the criminal is covering up clues, the victim is trying to leave clues, and the detective is trying to find the clues. Right? So that's kind of how it works. So if you watch a crime story from the criminal's point of view, you're really invested in watching them cover up. You're look, looking for, oh, they left fingerprints. So then you want them to wipe the fingerprints. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if, you're, if you're watching it from a detective's point of view, you're going, oh, wait, wait. Oh, uh, let me check the let me check the footprints. Let me check the, you know, you want to check everything. And if you're playing the victim, if it's from the victim's point, you go, oh, oh, do this, do this, leave that, so that, you know, drop the drop the uh, breadcrumbs, so that, the t- you know, that's how you're thinking, right? So that's how the three play out. Um, and uh, so, th- and then you have, like, secondary roles. Like, if you're doing a murder mystery type thing, you could have suspects, mm. right? But you don't need to have suspects, is the point. You can tell a crime story without suspects, but um, you can't tell a crime story without a detective criminal victim in some way you actually have to have those uh the victim may never say a word in your story they may be dead from the very from like before the first scene um but there has to be some, there has to be some sort of victim right uh even if it's like in i uh, like uh, the lady killers where the victim is a faceless corporation that really it doesn't matter if we steal from them right <laughs> there still needs to be someone yeah right um so uh, it's just that if you if your if your uh, protagonist is a criminal, generally to keep empathy, you highly highly uh, de-emphasize the victim. Mm. Uh, and if you really want people to get into empathy with the victim or the detective, you generally create a lot of empathy for the victim. Um, so anyway, so how do film noir roles differ from a crime story? Well, f- film noir um, is is not. It's a, so, Do you want to get into the genre a bit first? Well, we well, the, the big thing about film noir is the femme fatale. Hmm. Um, and the femme fatale, the, the way film noir works is the detective turns out to be a victim. And uh, the femme fatale is generally some victim who turns out to be the criminal. Hmm. That's typically what film noir does, right? That's what Brick just did, right? Because Brendan's the detective, and then he turns out to be a victim, right? Because he ends up, uh, Emily dies, but so does his baby, Mm. right? Uh, And at the same time, the woman he was confiding in and trusting, who was sort of a criminal, but kind of caught up in this thing, so she had an air of victimhood Mm. around her, um, she ends up uh, becoming the master criminal behind everything, right? Um, So... The um, uh, uh, the film noir sort of way of doing it is that's typically what happens is you have these sort of roles that sort of shift as the story goes on. Um, that's typically film noir. And then there's a bunch of other choices that go around it. Um, it's not really... Um, uh, it's not really a genre. Um, because... It's it's much like how western isn't really a genre. Um, it it what it really is is a series of choices that people have copied enough times that people think is so, are sort of conventions of a genre, but they're not. Um, uh, and that's why they that's why they can become so cliched so quickly. It's why things like the westerns or the the superhero movie or whatever these things that people think are genres 
they become so encrusted with cliche so quickly because they're they're not they're not genres. They're not deep enough to be genres. They're um they're a collection of choices around a spectrum of genres that then people just keep copying again and again and again. Um because they think that's that they think those those things are conventions they're not um a, 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 the example i always go to about why you can tell western isn't a genre is that the the things that started that really sort of cemented the the greatest westerns which were the spaghetti westerns of fistful of dollars and magnificent seven and uh, good bad and the ugly they are they, they are directly they are direct american translations of feudal Japanese samurai stories uh, by Akira Kurosawa. Uh, in fact, the time, I, I, if I'm right, the t- uh, Yojimbo, the the time frame that Yojimbo takes place in, uh, the, the century, is the exact same one as A Fistful of Dollars. Because remember, he has a gun in Yojimbo. He brandishes a gun. So uh, the, that's the big thing, that one of the characters, one of the villains has a gun. Uh, so they literally just translated it. So if Western was like a specific genre, you couldn't just translate something into it. It has to be... It's just its just one choice. You could choose to set it in Samurai Japan, or you could choose to set it in the West. Fundamentally, it's the same thing. The style is the same. The story is the same. Everything else is the same. The tone, blah, blah, blah. All that's the same. You just literally change the setting. So... Uh, what they really are is they're like they're a bunch of choices from how they're presented, where they're set, what kind of reality that they're in, what kind of uh, stories are told, whether it's like action stories or crime stories or love stories or whatever. It's a whole bunch of these choices that were made by you know some art some artist somewhere, and they've been copied again and again and again. And then they, there's enough of them that they get given a name like film noir or superhero or um, uh, western, and then people think that's a genre. Can I a question then? Yeah. Why is it uh, why is it such a commonly held belief that film noir is a subgenre of crime? Well, well, because it's so popular, and it it had such a dramatic effect. Um, and because uh, some of the, a lot of the works in the film noir are really good, and because crime, crime, you see, crime has always been this thing where like people love to sort of analyze, break down, and talk about crime. Crime, crime writing has has always been this thing that people love to break down, and film noir, the name film noir, is named after is a French name for a bunch of films made in the early 20th century that all had a distinctive look and were based off of novels i mean it's it's not it's not a it's not a term for a genre it's a term for a very specific style at a very specific time and that style wasn't just make it look dark right <laughs> it the style was you have certain kinds of shadows. You set it at a certain period in time. You set it in a certain world. It had like film noir, for example, has that look of people in trench coats with hats, right? Smoking, all that. It's nineteen forties, contemporary nineteen forties time, okay? Western society, um, and uh, you film it, and it's specifically to do with film, right? Film noir. It's specifically that, 
but they're based off of these sort of what we call hard-boiled pulp novels, right? And that was a stylistic style, uh, a, st- a stylistic form of, of prose. That's what that was. And what fundamentally sort of made that genre special was the shifting of, of, of roles. Hmm. But the, the, it's not it's not a subgenre to go, well, my, my detective becomes a victim. Because... Uh, you can have that happen and have it not be film noir. Like you can take brick and make it not a film noir, but have it, everything else happen, and it still wouldn't, and it wouldn't be film noir because it ha- it ha- it's not portrayed necessarily in the right way or whatever. Yeah. Um, I mean, The Big Lebowski, right, is film noir, isn't it? But it's also not film noir at all. But it's totally film noir. But it's not film noir. It, do you know what I mean? It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's one of those terms where it's like it's. <clears throat> It's a term that's really sounds really nice. It's it's coined, and it's not. This isn't like to go like, oh, film noir is not a thing. And like, it's a cool thing. It's just I I wouldn't I I don't think it's helpful to call it a genre because I think it makes it confuses choice with convention, which and, is different. And that's really the crux of what we wanted to get at today. Yes. And it's important to address that because otherwise it's impossible to learn something from it. Yeah, like you say, if you treat it. <coughs> If you treat it as a genre on its own, then that's how um, that's how uh, you end up with so many cliches. Right, because a cliche is not uh, a convention. A cliche is about execution. It's when you do a convention the same way. It's when you make a choice that someone else made and you do it the same way. That's cliche, right? But conventions aren't. Conventions. Once you once you realize what a convention is, you realize they're never cliches. Because conventions are tied to purpose. So to call a convention a cliche is simply insane. Because that's like saying, well, it's a cliche to tell a story about crimes. Well, so what? That makes no sense. It's, it's a cliche to use words in a novel. Like, what are you talking about? It's like you use the words for the function. The cli- has to be, has to have been an artist at some point in history that has used that sentence. Yeah, but they're forgotten. um so but (laughs) anyway (coughs) the the point is is like so when someone makes a choice like they want their detective to become uh, a victim for example there's nothing requiring you to do this there's no there's no reason that you have to do this other than you want to tell that story okay in which case the crime the crime genre is not compelling you there's nothing about the crime genre that's saying to you, and your characters must change roles. Hmm. There's nothing about that. The, I mean, the only way that, that that could be the case is like if you're doing a murder mystery, which, by the way, is also not a, a subgenre, right? For the same reasons, um, is you might have a character that's a victim that turns out to be the criminal. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, it, aha, he's the ah, you see, but you know, um, <clears throat> so. You, you you don't have to have character shift roles in crime. That's not something that's required. So if you want to do that, that's your choice. And so if it's your choice, then you have to think about how you're going to do it in a way that people haven't seen or haven't won't expect or whatever. You have to do it in an original way. That's what is making it a choice. As, a, as So a convention doesn't limit your choices a convention is there to get you to tell the story you want to tell so for example a convention of crime okay is a crime is committed right that's a convention 
Because if a crime isn't committed, then there's no crime story. There's no injustice, and so justice can't be served by definition, right? So a crime has to be committed is a convention of the crime story. But at no point does a crime have to be committed in the opening scene, in the first hour, in the first... uh, If you're doing a long-form television series, in the first 10 episodes, right? You you can commit the crime whenever you want. You can commit multiple crimes. You, etc., 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 right? And also, what kind of crime? How is it committed? Who committed it? Why they committed it? Etc. Etc. All this is different, right? Uh, a typical thing, for example, of film noir uh, is that the crime committed is really simple, but the motives are really complex. Whereas in Agatha Christie, the crime is really complex, but the motive is really simple. Okay, crime is committed. Where the complexity lies, up to you. It can go either way. If you're telling a long enough story, it can go from complex to simple to complex, blah, 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 right? So the convention is you have to tell a crime, you have to have a crime happen so you can have justice uh, be served that or not be served in the end. So either injustice triumphs or justice, your story is about justice, right? So you have to have the crime in order to unbalance that thing. That's the convention. But the choice is up to you. And so therefore, if you pick the same thing everyone else did, it's a cliche, right? Yeah, I just want to go back to two choices that Ryan Johnson made, which I think are quite interesting. Yeah, I want to ask you um, about them. First of all, why do you think he opens Brick with the inciting incident and then flashback? Oh, um, I don't know. It's Uh, always something I found quite interesting about Brick because it's an unusual. Like you often start at say the um, you know the penultimate act climax, or even at the very very end. And then oh, flash back to the beginning. You know, right. Fight what, Club does it. Also. Why does why does the why does the flash forward uh, is why is the flash forward so recent? Yeah. Ah, that's interesting because yeah, like the film like film noirs and stuff, they do have flash forwards quite. Like, yeah. Dramatic irony. See, <clears throat> I mentioned about murder mystery not being a genre. Mystery is just a relationship the audience has with exposition. Mm. I you don't know as much as the characters. Suspense is you know the same. Dramatic irony is you know more. Yeah. Okay. So. Brick is a murder mystery, but you have dramatic irony. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not, you know, you don't know everything, but you know more than the characters for some of the story. So murder mystery isn't really, um, for the same reasons as film. Anyway, um, the, uh, so why open it like that? I I, I don't know. Um, My feeling is by opening it like that, you know she ends up dead. So when he goes looking for a, a, you, the problem is the film is set in a high school. It can seem really trivial. You open it with a murder, you know this is serious. Mm. So as he is going breakneck looking for her in a really bizarre way, if you stop and think about it, I was, I remember when I was watching it, I was thinking like, he's really intense <laughs> about finding her. But you're okay with that because you know she ends up dead. Yeah. So you, you're, his, his paranoia and intensity, you empathize with because you know he's right. But if it didn't have that, you'd be like, why is this kid so intense about this? She, so what? A kid goes missing. Like, she's probably just hanging out at her friends for a night. Like, Take calm easy, down. Man. Go yeah. play some video games. Yeah, play video games. Like, just text her, dude, and wait. You know, like, that's it. <laughs> but because you know she ends up dead, there's a huge amount of intensity there. Okay. So, uh, but, uh, you know, that's, yeah, he opens the shot with the crime, then flashbacks to before, two days before the crime. Yeah. So you can, and you never see the crime happen on screen anyway. 
So, right? But like, why? Well, so because this is this is what my story needs. This is what I need to tell. This seems an interesting way of hooking the audience, etc., etc. These are my choices. The other um, scene I wanted to bring up, which uh, came about when you were talking about the simple murder yeah. complex motive yeah. thing. Um, it's uh, it it felt like the penultimate at climax, but I haven't we, I haven't done a breakdown, so I'm not sure. But it's towards the end of the movie when you discover that. Tug was the one mm. that would have shot her mm. in that scene with Dode um, under the in, mm. in the tunnel. Right? Mm. There's a lot of the movie left. Mm. It's a simple murder. Like you now know who did it. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. We know who did it, mm. but we are nowhere near to discovering the complex motive behind it. Yeah, we still don't really understand what who. And in fact, you don't really understand the motives behind anything until the very last scene. No, I guess I guess what I'm getting at with Bryn, uh, with with kind of mentioning that scene is, um, uh, is that normally you discover the identity of a killer in a crime story closer oh. to the end or at the very end, but this is actually a. A clean twenty minutes, half an hour before the end, maybe. It, well, it depends. You see, it's about fo- it's about emphasis and focusing. Yeah. So if you want to focus people on motivations of why they did it, they kind of need to know who did it beforehand, right? <laughs> otherwise, <laughs> otherwise they don't know who who's got the motivations that you're ascribing. So they so t- I, you would normally find out a bit earlier, or uh, you would find something out. You know, you have to be able to piece it together. But if you think about it, the villain, uh, the criminal, isn't exposed until the very last scene. No. Right, and then he gives the speech of the motivation at that time, piecing all the pe- putting all the pieces together. Mm. I mean, crime stories intrigue. Um, that's just naturally how they work because you're talking about justice, so the audience inherently wants to kind of like um, put the clues together back and forth. That's what crime stories do, as opposed to say social dramas, which don't do that with justice. They talk about why justice isn't in society uh, and how we can get it. But crime stories. Are much more about how and uh, how you solve crimes and how you get away with crime, right? Um, and so they intrigue, and so y- you can't just constantly intrigue the audience. You have to be able to kind of focus that. And so if you want people to focus on the motivations of crime, you have to make the crime simple. And if you want people to focus on the, the motivations of crime, then you can't constantly keep hiding who done it. You reveal. In, you you have to reveal like okay that person's a bit responsible and then that person's a bit responsible and so the the murders are simple and who you're following is simple there isn't a panoply of people to pick from mm. and all that stuff there isn't a complex like you know because the, bri- the brick world is tiny isn't it it's tiny but so is a, so is an Agatha Christie it's often like five people and yeah. that's it in one house right but in Agatha Christie you're sitting there playing the timeline in your head like in Death on the Nile there's this wonderful thing in Death on the Nile where you're sitting there. And literally Poirot, you hear the gunshot, you hear this fall, you hear that. Poirot hears things, okay? He has to work out who done it based on the sounds. And everyone is is accounted for at certain points on the boat. So how long does it take for you to get from this point on the boat to the other point of the boat, right? In fact, Colombo had a similar story as well, on set on a boat. So you're working out the timeline, okay? <laughs> Your 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 focus is on the logistics of how they did this crime, right? But brick, right? No, <laughs> none of that. You're you're focusing on why would someone do this? 
how, you know, why? Who like what? Who who has the mentality to pull this off? And right, so he's all about the 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 motives behind why she's scared. Who? Why would someone want to kill her? What did she know? Etc. 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 Not the logistics of who killed them. So, um, so it's just a focusing of that. So you know, yeah, you see Tug kill Dode, and there's still more to come because it's like it doesn't really explain things. Hmm. Because like, why did you know? Why did Emily call him? Hmm. Uh, in fact, I I don't know if Tug did. Tug did kill Emily, didn't he? It wasn't the woman in the end. Jeez, I can't remember now. I've literally no, <laughs> no. He says at the end in the big. Uh, uh, this is this is what happened. He um, he made them. Yeah, Tug. He, yeah, Tug. He told yeah, Tug did what told, Tug did. Yeah, told her to tell Tug it was his kid because that's she right. Knew that Tug. That's right. Blow. She. That's right. The woman engineered her death. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because she. That was it. She stole the brick. Oh man, I butchered that synopsis. She stole. She stole the brick. Uh, uh, she Sorry, then, Ryan, if you're listening. Yeah, she then uh, um, uh, uh, got Emily to take the call, uh, fall for it by telling Tug it's his baby. So Emily's thinking, like, if I tell Tug this, this is how she's being sold it. Tug won't hurt me. But of course, this woman knows that if she does that, Tug is going to kill her. So, like, that's the whole point, right? So she engineers her death. Now, the um, question then, which will all start, go on. kind of propelling us towards the end. Um, because I think it's quite interesting. Why was brick made? Uh, why was it set in a school? Right. So, what I was saying earlier, the the, the reason to get I get so nitpicky and pinnickety about like, well, film noir isn't technically a genre. Obviously, to do that, you have to define genre, right? And you have to define the crime genre, and then you have to define the, you have to have these definitions. And for me, when you make these definitions, they should be sort of inclusive definitions that. Um, are are correct (laughs) like like, they have these sort of kind of first principles bare bones make sense and the reason is so you can tell the difference between cliche and convention because if you can tell the difference between those you can make choices and if you make choices you make original work instead of derivative work right and if you uh, seriously if you want to understand why that's important go to Amazon and type in uh, book how to write and hit enter and every book will be essentially book saying you see this film that made a choice that's a convention you have to apply and they're basically trend fad books right they're telling you how to write in a trendy style um that's currently popular in hollywood and of course by the time the book comes out and you've written your story you know 10 years have passed and the styles have changed right so all those books on like how to write westerns, like they don't apply anymore, right? So you see it all the time, like Save the Cat is one of those things. Like how do you, how do you write a book where you have to make your protagonist seem empathetic? It's like yeah, fine, that might have been interesting until long form television came out and everyone's favorite person is a drug dealing meth chemist, right? And like now it's not about saving the cat; it's about letting the girl die in her vomit, which is not <laughs> as t- as lovely a, a title, right? Um, so right, yeah, okay, so. Um, so th- this is why I'm like, I'm, I, this is, you know, I, the point of this is to like to actually give practical advice as opposed to just wafty, like trendy advice. So that's why I'm getting really sort of deep down. It doesn't matter too much if you know terminology in that way, but at least if you can understand the principle. So if you understand that you make unique choices. So one of the big conventions, I'm using air quotes of film noir 
is what did I say? It's set in the 40s in the city. Everyone's wearing trench coats and they're wearing uh, um, fedoras and they're smoking cigars and Humphrey Bogart's in it going, Meh, right? That's that's the that's the film noir. And like Ryan Johnson, he loves Dashiell Hammett, he who invented the hard boil novel basically, and Chandler was his successor, and. He loved him. He wrote the Maltese Falcon, this guy. And so he loved him, and he read his books, and he loved them, and he wanted to make a film noir. He wanted to make a hard-boiled film noir movie. But, but, everything he did was just a cheap imitation. It didn't work. He couldn't make it work. And then he went, well, what if I said it in a high school? A lot of the characters that you see in these stories apply to tropes of high school stories, right? In what way, by the way? Well, for example, like, uh, the loner. Right. Right? (laughs) <laughs> right, the loner, the loner detective is like Brendan. Right, he's the loner kid. He doesn't belong to a clique. The cliques are very much like gangs. Uh, the assistant vice principal works very well as the police chief. Right, and and so on. So like, he just he went. Oh yeah, actually, there's a lot of nice parallels here. And the reason I say this is he looked at film noir and realized that the setting, being the early twentieth century, because that's when Dashiell Hammer and Raymond Chandler were writing and it was just the contemporary time for them, is not a convention of film noir. It's not something that's required. You can do a film noir outside of the 1940s, right? You can do it in colour as well, right? <laughs> so he realised that, so he came up with this brilliant choice, set it in a high school, and has made what is still one of the most original films. Like it's Still, to this day, if you go like, hey, Brick, you know, it's, it's a film... <laughs> It's a, it's like what is it? It's a high school uh, film noir. You watch it, and people today will just go, "This is I've ne- this is weird. Like you've never seen this." And it's true. And it doesn't really play up the fact that it's set in a high school for laughs. There's like one gag with the apple juice, that and the mother, the Capin's mother. Oh yeah. That's the one gag in the film. Other than that, there that just isn't any, right? And it it just plays it straight, and it's it's like it's really fresh and original. Um, film noir stuff and uh, one of the beautiful things that came out of it ryan johnson explained was it it, it's not anything like a real teen movie but it feels more like a teen movie than other teen movies do because other teen movies are always about the coming of age they're always temporary and transitory and he went but when you're a teenager that's not how school feels when you're a teenager the school feels permanent. It feels eternal in that sense, right? And so, in this film, these kids are not thinking about what life's going to be like outside of school. In fact, you never see them outside of school, really, right? Except at parties and stuff. Like They, they don't have a life outside of school. All that matters is who you sit, sit with at lunch. And so, as a result, you're watching. This is how kids feel about school. Like... Outside of that world, you're looking at, wow, they're really taking it way too seriously. But it feels, that's what school feels like to kids, right? I mean, obviously it's not <laughs> filled with murder. <laughs> but it, that sense of, like, this really is important, this really matters, this is all there really is to this, is that's a very... Um, so he got this wonderful, unique thing out of, out of it by, by simply looking... At one aspect of film noir and going, I don't have to have it be in the 40s. 
And that's why when I say it's not a genre, it's not to denigrate film noir because actually I really like film noir. It's not. It's not about that. It's not about a being a snob or a crime. It's not real. You know, it's nothing about it. It's about simply trying to make it clear that like you can tell a story where uh, a tragic crime story where the detective uh, comes apart and it, and you don't have to copy. Uh, the mise-en-scene and uh, the, the language. You, I mean, you can use that stuff if you like it. If you like it and you want to do it, that's fine. But then you have to own it. But if you just slavishly copy it, you're just going to create cliche. And as I was saying uh, uh, earlier um, of Mike, if, uh, if I'm right, the first film noir, the first story that has a detective become a victim uh, is Oedipus Rex. I think. And I think Oedipus Rex has the, has the criminal victim thing as well. It has the femme fatale. Because isn't that the point of it? Isn't that why the the, the name, uh, the Freudian thing is named after the Oedipus, Oedipus complex? I can't remember. But anyway, I think that's right. But that's kind of my thing. It's like, well, that's that's a very... That's not 1940s Humphrey Bogart, Oedipus Rex, right? <laughs> so... That's the, that's the reason to, to look at it but differently because then you, you can make choices that can help you make something unique, which is what uh, Ryan Johnson did with Brick. He just went, I don't have to have these characters be adults. I don't have to have them be in this setting. I can sit in a high school and play it straight. And, oh, look, I made a film that's jump-started my career. And, and like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just really great. So... Anyway, that's that's the that's why that's why I'm getting that's why I, I make those sort of nitpicky things. Um, do you think that's that's going to cover my question? What do we learn? What do we take away? Yeah, I, I, the only other thing that we could take away is that you don't actually have to be conscious of this. In that sense, I mean, like for a lot of like obviously with Johnson, he didn't go there and go like, well, let me see what the difference is. Like he, that's not how he would have thought about it. But he, after working on it repeatedly, he would have understood that's. I don't have to have it set at this thing. I can change the setting mm. and that will give me the freshness I need. Right? Uh, and I can put it in a setting no one else has ever picked for a film noir. And that will do it. Right? Contemporary uh, American high school. Bam. Right? So what I'm doing is for people who... So what we're doing here is like just for those of you who who are trying... Like, it's, like, it's like, you know here's what Ryan Johnson did and here's how you can learn from it, right? That's the that's the point. So it's just, you know, you want to try and realize the difference between a cliche, a convention, and a choice. And the, as I say, the, the big way to tell the difference is this. A convention is about purpose. So if you have a description of convention and there's no purpose behind it, an actual purpose, it, you've got a cliche. And that purpose, by the way, can't be just something random. It can't be like, oh yeah, you put that in to make the audience laugh. That's not a convention. Because why do you have to make the audience laugh? It's a holistic thing, right? And it's something every story of that kind would require. So a comedy obviously wants to make people laugh, right? But you don't have to make people laugh in any other genre if you don't want to, okay? But if you want to make people laugh, you need to do comedy. That doesn't mean you can't make people laugh outside of a comedy. It just means that you don't have to, right? So it's about that. It's about really trying to break it down to like the, those key conventions that you need. And if you focus on uh, on holistic, functional purpose of what it is that you're of the kind of story you're trying to tell, it should be true of every kind of story of that form, right? And from that, then you can make unique choices. 
and that's just a way of breaking it down if you don't and it's it's a good way of learning and then eventually that learning becomes instinctual and then you can just you kind of crack it as you go along that's the anyway there are pockets yes. doing this podcast just brief periods of time where I'm yeah. reminded how smart you are <laughs> when was that just now oh just now yeah you re- you really just sat well in the pocket took your time <laughs> picked off your points Done. Thank you. Mic drop. <laughs> I don't want to drop that mic. Don't drop the mic. No. <laughs> Actually, I have dropped the mic. Remember when I put it on top of your car and I forgot that it's round and it rolled off the car? <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. I'm pretty smart. We're back. <laughs>